and I encourage more of that. Um, God has a lot to say through his people. That's why gathering is so vital to our spiritual growth. We are meant to nourish each other, and that's the purpose of the church. So, amen. I know that there's a lot of emotion surrounding the state of our nation, mixed emotions. <laughs> Some people are breathing a sigh of relief. Others are wringing their hands in fear. And um, amen, God's got it. It's, and it's not my intent to just ignore that and act like nothing's happening. I'm, I'm very involved. I've called special prayer meetings. I'm on my face, you know, bringing our nation before God every day. And, um, <clears throat> but I want you to know, I will talk about it here um, at the right time. And if I, if I don't yet, if I haven't yet, it's because John 12, 24, John 12, 49 says, Jesus said, I don't say anything except what the Father tells me to say. And in John 5, 19, Jesus said, I don't do anything except what the Father tells me to do. So I'm just being obedient to the Lord to the best of my ability, as I know you are too. But it's very much on my heart, and I don't, uh, you know, I, I will, by God's grace, in, in the right time, um, address that while not being divisive, because ultimately, the unity of the Spirit is what God is after, and uh, that's where we, we will experience the power and see revival, is when we are unified in Spirit. So, I just wanted to say that. Um, but today I want to talk about the question no one ever asks, and I hope that's hyperbole. I hope that's an exaggeration when I say the question no one ever asks, but it's a, it's a question that I believe we should ask when we're going through a hard time, and it occurred to me this year uh, that I, I hadn't asked this question. I need to bring this question into my life, and... Um, I think it'll make a difference. I think it's the mark of spiritual maturity. It's the mark of really knowing God. So you're probably familiar with the book of Job. It used to be my least favorite book. Now it's probably one of my very favorite books. It's very complex. It's a deeper story with more meaning than we ever realize. On the surface, people think it's a story about, you know, how God allowed someone to go through a really hard time, and when he forgave his friends and prayed for them, God made everything better. Well, that's not, that's, not, that's not what the story's about. Yeah, that happened in the story, but that's not, it's not what the story's about. It's about the fact that Job was asking the wrong questions. <laughs> he didn't ask the one question that people rarely ask. See, he, he, he did what you and I do, did, do when we fall into hard times, when we suffer, when we go through adversity. He asked the same questions you and I ask. God, why are you doing this? And how long is it going to take to get me out of here? How long am I going to have to keep through, going through this? And why have you let this happen to me? And for about 28 chapters in the book of Job, we see him doing the same thing. <laughs> He's almost got his fist raised. He actually talks about dragging God into, the, into court. He literally says that. I wish I could just take God into court, but I don't have a mediator, anyone to mediate and, and help plead my cause. Well, that was prophetic because God is our advocate. Jesus is our advocate. So he's, he's making these demands of God, like, how dare you let this drag on and on? 
And why did you let this happen to me? And those are the questions you and I tend to ask. And then his wonderful friends, we know about them, if you've read the book of Job, those three friends. We've got friends like that sometimes, right? And, and they thought they would help Job out by answering his questions. Well, Job, you, God has allowed this to happen because surely you've done something wrong and he's punishing you. So if you would just out with it, confess your wrongdoing, God will he'll make everything better. Well, they were dead wrong. They misjudged God's character, and they misjudged Job's character. He was a righteous man. The Bible speaks very highly of Job. But then this fourth guy comes along toward the end of Job. I, I would encourage you to read this book. Just study it. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. This fourth guy comes along, and he waits for a while because he's young, and he's respectful of his elders, and he lets them have their say. And when they're all done, he very carefully, timidly, but boldly speaks up. And, and he asks the question that no one ever asks, no one had thought to ask. Certainly Job had, ne had never entered his mind to ask. I rarely think to ask this when I'm going through something, but by God's grace, I want to learn to ask this question. This is what Elihu says to Job in Job 34, 32. He's gently trying to get at something. He's, he's gently trying to dig below the surface and help Job understand the deeper purpose of his suffering. After he rebukes the three friends for their harshness, for their condemnation, for their blindness, after he rebukes them, he then turns to Job and he gently tries to help Job understand that he's been asking the wrong questions. And in Job 34, 32, he, he says this. Job, let's back up to the previous verse. He says, Job, has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more. Now here's the question. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. See, this is very different from what the friends are saying. They were making their judgment. You've done wrong, you must be being punished. This is very different. Elihu comes along and says, okay, you guys are all wrong, but Job, listen. Has anyone ever, is there any human being on the face of this earth who, when they are suffering, actually stops takes a look within themselves and says, teach me what I cannot see, or actually directs that question to God. God, teach me what I cannot see. In other words, God, there must be something I'm missing here. Is there is any part of this me? <laughs> teach me what I do not see. I mean, think about it. Who of us ever would walk around and, and just ask people that question. Hey, teach me what I can't see about myself. I mean, wouldn't we love to answer that for people? <laughs> Don't we wish they would ask? No, <laughs> but we'd love to tell them. But who of us ever asks that of the Lord who knows us through and through, at the core of our being, who knows us so well, every hidden thought? Who of us would ever, in the middle of something that happened to us or that someone is doing to us, God, teach me what I do not see. Is any part of this me? 
Is there anything in what I'm going through, is there anything that you are trying to get at in me? And when you ask that, this is very important, because if you, you've got to have the cross, otherwise it's a message of condemnation. It's not. It's a message of grace. Because when you see this through the cross, when you ask this question through the cross, and you see God hanging there and suffering the ultimate suffering for you, for you, you know he's not just out to get you, out to spank you, out to leave you in time out and walk away, count to 10, tap his toes, fold his arms, make sure you're finally going to learn your lesson. That's not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is I have entered into your suffering with you, and if you will listen and bring me into it, I will show you what you cannot see that I am doing in your life, in your person, in your character, in your heart, and in your attitude. I had a struggle for a while, and this year I had a breakthrough. This was my breakthrough year. I had a huge breakthrough this year. I had been struggling for a long time in my attitude, and it had to do in the area of, with the area of relationship. It was a specific struggle, and I allowed it to consume me to the point where I would lie awake at night, seething, angry, resentful. I had this systemic bitterness and anger. And I was asking the same questions that we tend to ask. Why do you let this go on and on and on? And when are you going to do something about it? And every single day praying, God, fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. Literally every day faithfully praying because aren't we supposed to? Yes. Yes. God, please fix this. Make it go away. Fix this. And one day... I thought about this question, God, teach me what I do not see. And I heard myself ask God, as I was praying my usual prayer, my fix-it prayer. Oh, we love our fix-it prayers. I was praying that, and all of a sudden I stopped, and I said, Lord, if there's anything about this that you are using because of me, if this is me, if any part of this is me, then fix me first. Fix me first. And as sure as I am standing here before you, almost I would say overnight, literally overnight, that burden, that oppressive anger and resentment lifted, completely lifted completely lifted, like losing a 1,000 pounds. I was free. Nothing changed in the situation. Nothing changed. Because that's what it wasn't. What, it wasn't about that. It was about me. It was about me. I mean, I was so free, so full of joy, so full of peace. I said, okay, Lord, you know what? If you never fix this, I think it's okay. Because this feels pretty good. This feels pretty good. I'm free. 
teach me what I do not see. We heard through one of you this morning the word wait. Wait on the Lord. Isaiah 30, 18 says, Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And that word wait, this is Isaiah 30, 18, and that word wait, when you wait for someone, there's an anticipation. You are anticipating that something's going to change. Something's going to happen. They're going to show up. Waiting for someone does not involve ignoring them or walking away. You are waiting. So Isaiah 30, 18 says, therefore, the Lord will wait Why is he waiting? So that he may be gracious to you. I'm telling you this morning, whatever you're going through, the Lord is waiting. Did I get it wrong? 3018, thank you. Whatever you're going through, the Lord waits for a purpose. And his purpose is that he may be gracious to you. And the most gracious thing God can do for you and for me is to change us first in the waiting. He changed me. He set me free from, I'm telling you, years of a particular struggle that was holding me back, hindering me, stealing my joy, robbing my peace. So I want to mention three reasons God waits. Three things he's possibly waiting for you and I to see. God, teach me what I cannot see. There could be three reasons that God is waiting right now before he fixes that thing you've been asking him to fix. Number one, I think God waits because we're complacent. If there's anything I've come to realize this year is how sleeping, how how much asleep the church is. I mean, we've always been. We need revival. Let's face it. We know this. But this year, I've, I've, I've really seen it. There's this complacency. There, there's this, I know it's been a different year. You know, I know there's a virus. I know it has changed the way we've had to gather, et cetera. I know, I know all that. But there's, there is this underlying complacency that says, you know, I'm just really not in need of the Lord today. And I believe God waits for us to wake up. He waits for us to wake up. You ever waited for someone to wake up? You think, oh man, they're never going to wake up. They are so solidly asleep. So finally you get tired of, wake, of waiting and you shake them. You shake them up to wake them up. I wonder when God is going to get tired of waiting for the church to wake up and so he has to shake us up to wake us up. We need to think about that. It's what he's doing. I mean, is God, is God really, is, is, he, is he done with just waiting for the church to wake up? Is he at the point where he has risen and he's beginning the shaking? And it may look like something very different than what you ever expect. I'm talking about a spiritual awakening. I'm not talking about an earthly or political awakening. See, there's two camps right now in the natural. You've got the woke and you've got the awake you got the awoke people and you've got the, the people who are awake, you know, and, and, and they both have this great sense of being awake, having woken up to something. Let me tell you, you can be as awake as anything. You can be so um, actively and passionately awake and aware 
of what's going on in the natural and be absolutely spiritually comatose. In fact, I would say sometimes the two go hand in hand. Because the more we get so taken with this world's affairs, we can lose sight of the real kingdom, the true and lasting kingdom. And so I believe God is shaking the church awake. He's shaking it by whatever means he will wake us up. So there's, a, there's an interesting verse in Jeremiah 48.11. Jeremiah 48.11 God speaks of the tribe of Moab here. And in this verse, Moab represents a sleeping church, God's people who are asleep. Isaiah 48, 11. You're doing a good job, honey. Sarah's not with us today. She's visiting her sister. So uh, thank you, Davy. Jeremiah 48, 11 says, Moab has been at ease from his youth at ease, asleep. He has settled on his dregs. Now it's going to use the imagery of winemaking. He has settled on his dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel. If you know anything about making wine or drinking wine, red and port wines, if they sit a while, they settle on their dregs. The sediment sinks to the bottom and it produces this chalky, yucky sort of bitter taste. And and what wine connoisseurs will do is pour it into a decanter. And, and so they'll slowly pour the wine into another vessel very slowly, and then they'll leave that sediment, the dregs, on the bottom of the original vessel. And two things happen when they do that. When you decant wine, two things happen. First of all, the sediment is removed, creating a better taste, and it's called aeration. The volatile aromas will escape through that process of aeration, allowing more oxygen into the wine as you decant it. See, God, when, we, when you and I, when, we, when we're settled for too long, when we sit at ease, it says Moab has been at ease from his youth. When we are too long at ease, the dregs begin to settle and we can produce a very volatile aroma. <laughs> Seriously. Show me someone who's doesn't have the best mm, aroma coming from their life. And I'll show you someone who has possibly sat at ease for too long because adversity is meant to build compassion in you and the fragrance of Christ and a very gracious, seasoned with salt. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt. But God said, Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs. He's not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Do you ever feel like you're being emptied? Like, God, I can't take any more emptying. How much are you going to keep emptying me? He doesn't want you settled on your dregs. He's producing the aroma of Christ in your life. And notice it says after that, nor has he gone into captivity. Whoa. We think our captivity is so captive, so captivating. It feels like a prison sometimes, the places God has us in. And God is saying it's a problem that Moab has not gone into captivity. And it says, therefore, his taste remained in him and his scent has not changed. 
I want to get to the place in my life and in my walk with God where even though I don't like it, I don't love saying it, but because I love the Lord and I want to serve him, I want to say, God, show me what I cannot see. I don't want this taste, this volatile aroma in my life that comes out and people see it and say, well, she's unchanged. She's no different than anyone else. In Revelation 3.15, Jesus rebukes the church of Laodicea. He says, you're lukewarm, complacent, lethargic, apathetic. He said, I would actually rather you be cold, like completely gone from God, completely walked away from the Lord, dead in your sins, or on fire for God. I'd rather you be either one. But when you're lukewarm, you don't know it. It's harder to tell. It's harder to recognize yourself and ourselves when we are in a lukewarm state than when we are hot or cold. Jesus said, repent, or else I'll I'll spew you out of my mouth. He, He says, you don't realize that you're poor, wretched, blind, and naked. I mean, look, in the natural, if we were naked, we'd know it. We'd be very much aware of that. Jesus is saying, you don't even see your own state, th- that you're, you're, you're um, without this being on fire for God, without pursuing me with a passion, without being fully awakened to what I want to do in your life, without a close, um, all-consuming love for me, Jesus is saying, you have no idea that you are therefore wretched, blind, and naked. He says, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Gold tried in the fire. So that brings me to the second thing, second reason why God waits. Sometimes it's for complacency. Sometimes it's for refining, for our refining. The Apostle Paul had this experience throughout his life, probably lasted all his life, and he talked about it in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. You know, Paul, he's, he's a person of um, a very impressive pedigree and uh, resume. And, you know, he's, he's been educated. He's very highly educated. Um, he's been trained by the highest teachers. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's got all these impressive letters behind his name, if you will. And he's... God has gifted him with so much wisdom, and he has so much revelation, and he's, he's actually been caught up and taken into heaven, and he has so much knowledge. I mean, he's someone who could easily be venerated by the people who learn from him, and he knows this. He's aware of this, of how gifted he, he's, he is by God. And so he says this in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he says, lest I should be exalted above measure. In other words, translated, lest I should become arrogant, sweet on myself, egoist, egotistic, lest I should start to think of myself higher than I ought to think. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. You hear that? Was given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now, we need to understand this. God's not the author of evil. Satan is the author of evil. But God doesn't waste anything. 
He will use whatever happens in this fallen world that is very temporarily under the rule of Satan, under a curse for a short time. God will use anything to shake us up and wake us up, to shake us loose from our lethargy, to refine and purify our character, to show us what we cannot see. God will use it. So Paul says, There's, there was this messenger of Satan given to me to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. See, sometimes, I don't know about you, but I know when I'm getting exalted above measure. I know when deep down I start to think, huh, huh maybe I am all that. I did a really good job. <laughs> you know, I, I can see why God would use me. I mean, we'd never consciously think that. We'd never, like, write that, you know, on a mirror or something or post it. But we can so easily become exalted above measure where even if it's not conscious egoism, we can so very easily at least think, oh, I got this. I got this. I don't need my time with God today. I don't need the body of Christ. I got this. And so Paul says, lest I should be exalted above measure, Concerning this thing, this trial, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. There's that prayer. There's the common prayer. Please make it go away. Please make it go away. Please make it go away. Every day. I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Can we sing it and mean it? Jesus, you're still enough. Jesus, you're still enough. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. See, right now, God may be trying to perfect his strength through your weakness, through whatever you're going through. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Then I am strong. This is a man who was regularly on a daily basis, beaten, starved, robbed, homeless, without shelter and without food, and imprisoned. And he says, I take pleasure in this stuff because I'm experiencing the strength, God's strength being made perfect in my weakness. He's being refined. Maybe you've heard the famous story about a woman who goes and she watches a silversmith, and he's refining silver through heat, and she watches him, and she says to him, well, how long do you have to leave it in the fire? Well, I just, and he says to her, I have to uh, make sure that I don't turn my eye away from the fire, otherwise that silver will burn. I have to hold it directly over the hottest part of the flame, and I have to make sure that I watch it the entire time. And then the woman says to the silversmith, how do you know when the silver is finally refined? He says, oh, that's easy, when I can see my image in the silver. See, God is refining you and me, and he wants to get us to the point where the image of Christ can be seen in us. When people would look at us and say, wow, I, that must be something like what Jesus is like. That's why we go through the heat. 
But you know, it says, it says in Malachi 3.3, this beautiful truth about Jesus as the refiner. It says, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Notice it says, he will sit. He never takes his eyes off your flame. He never takes his eyes off the flame in your life, that heat that you feel when you wonder how, how hot are you going to let this be turned up, God. He never takes his eye off, and he won't, and he will sit with you as he refines and purifies you until the image of Christ can finally be seen in you. Paul? He won't let us burn. We think he will. He, we, sometimes we think he will. It says he, he will sit as the refiner and purifier. Paul said the whole, the whole goal, the whole goal is, we, look, we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the goal. I've mentioned this plenty of times. Our eight-year ordeal that started in February of 2013, uh, February of 2005, lasted till August of 2013. Eight years, we went, we went from living a very comfortable lifestyle to living by Wikipedia standards below the poverty line. I'm not kidding. Below the poverty line for eight years. Didn't know how we were going to buy groceries. Medicaid, food stamps, and worse. I mean, I, there are some things I, I just I, I can't talk about yet. <laughs> that we went through. Eight long years. God, why have you let this happen to us? And how long are you going to let this drag on? Please make this better. Please give my husband a job. Please provide for us. Please bring us out of this wilderness. Do you know God was refining us? You know what he did? He did three things, at least three things. Number one, he dealt with covetousness because I like stuff. I still have to keep an eye on that. It says, um, it says uh, in, I think, Corinthians, somewhere in the New Testament, Paul said, covetousness is as the sin of idolatry. It's listed right there next to sexual immorality. Covetousness. Wanting stuff, more stuff. Thinking that things and new toys can make us happy. And oh man, did I love to shop for stuff. Still do. Still have to watch this. It will always be a temptation, but I'm telling you, it was an idol in my life. God dealt with that. The other thing he was doing as he was refining us for that eight-year period is he was preparing us for ministry. Can you imagine? Being, living such a comfortable lifestyle, you can just pick up and go on a cruise, go to Hawaii, all the things we just did without even thinking about it. We're going to come minister in the poorest village in Shimung County and tell people they can trust the Lord to provide. He'll take care of you. God's going to provide. It's all good. You can have your very best life. God's got a good plan for you. He's going to bless you. You think we're going to stand up here living that kind of lifestyle and tell people... <laughs> who may not know where they're, they're going to get their next meal. We're going to stand up here and tell them how good God is and he's going to bless you. We've never had a clue what it's like to live their life. God knew exactly what he was doing. We had no idea we'd be ministering here in Wellsburg, but God knew. He was preparing the silver. 
He was burning away the dross to make us a useful vessel for his glory. And the other thing he was doing was building our faith. Oh, man. That's still a process. I remember just, it was like this. You know when you're going through something and you just don't, you see no way out. It's like this heaviness. I remember one day, Dave, you know, he had had an inter interview and he got a phone call and it looked like he probably got the job and whoo, that oppressiveness, that heavy weight instantly lifted. And I felt so, so ashamed of myself. Why could I not have experienced this joy, this freedom before the phone call? And God showed me my faith was weak. He was wanting to develop my faith so that I could trust him, so that I could live in that abundance of peace and joy without the circumstances coming through. Refinement. And number three, see God, he's dealing with complacency, he's refining us, and sometimes he's dealing with disobedience. And this is not popular, what I'm about to say. <laughs> this, this will not win you the prize as the, 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 most pop, the most viewed preacher in America. You start talking about obedience or disobedience. But I believe some adversity we simply bring on ourselves by persistent, willful, conscious disobedience, a.k.a. sin. And so sometimes if we ask the question, God, teach me what I cannot see, the answer is simply going to be, get your life in line with my word. Just start being obedient, you know? Be obedient with your finances. Stop, stop living outside your means and buying things you don't need. Be obedient with your lifestyle, you know? Stop shacking up, sleeping around. Live according to my design for your life. It amazes me so many times. People have come to me, no one here, of course. People have come to me, and they're full out living in sin, and they know it. Oh, pray for me. I've got all these problems. Pray that make it, God will make it all go away and fix everything. I'm like, how about you start obeying the word of God? I will pray that for you. I will gladly pray that for you. Otherwise, I'm praying a prayer that God's ears are closed to. It says the Lord's ears are open to the righteous. He hears the prayers of the righteous. Sometimes it's just a matter of simple forgiveness. We keep ourselves bound in, in, in a, well, you know, I was doing it. We keep ourselves locked in this prison of oppression because we simply refuse to forgive. That's disobedience. And sometimes God is simply just trying to show us what we cannot see. That our own disobedient attitudes and thoughts can keep us in this, um, this wilderness. Um, Psalm 119.67 says this. Amazing verse. Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. There's a man who has learned his lesson. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Hebrews 12, 5. Hebrews 12, 5. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, 
Don't be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, hear that, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as a son or a daughter. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which we all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Listen to these words. For they indeed for a few days chastened us. This is talking about our natural parents who disciplined us. If we had good parents who understood appropriate discipline, they for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit. See, they did it as seemed best to them, and sometimes they got it wrong, our natural parents. Sometimes they didn't get chastening exactly right. It says they did it as it seemed best to them, but he does it. He disciplines for our profit. God, teach me what I cannot see, so that we may be partakers of his holiness. And it goes on to say, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, right? Is chastening joyful for the present when you're going through it? Is it joyful? No, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Did you see that God's goal for you is to heal you? Body, soul, and spirit. And sometimes his discipline is, always his discipline is ultimately purposed for your healing. Lamentations 3.38 shows us the proper attitude toward the Lord's discipline. Lamentations 3.38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? Let us, let us search out and examine our ways. Let us search out and examine our ways. Lord, teach me what I cannot see. And turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. You read that. There's another. Write that down to read this week, Lamentations 3. My dad said to me the other day, he said, that's such a powerful chapter that people, anybody who's depressed, all they have to do is get that chapter in their spirit. They wouldn't be depressed anymore. I thought, that sounds crazy. That's a chapter about Jeremiah. He's literally in a dungeon. He's walled. He's being tortured. He's in a dungeon when he's writing this chapter. He's writing about how horrible his life is, how God's done all these horrible things to him and let all this horrible stuff happen. He's probably going to die when he's writing this chapter. But as you read the chapter, he starts to see the purposes of God in his suffering. And he ends up saying, man, put your face in the dust. Don't question. God owes you nothing. Is it not from the mouth of the Lord that woe and well-being proceed? But look what it goes on to say. In the same chapter, it goes on to say, Lamentations 3.25, it says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who, see, God waits for us to wait for him. Think of that. To the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. 
See, we wait for God's salvation the wrong way. We stomp our feet and scream and watch the clock and we set a timer for God. It's not how we're supposed, that's not waiting on the Lord. It says it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord to the soul who seeks him. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. This is a humble acceptance of God, whatever you're doing in my life, do it so thoroughly that I won't have to go through this again. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Listen to these words. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. And this is so, so very important. For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. You've got to understand this morning as I say these hard words in this message that might be hard to hear. You've got to understand it is not in God's heart to afflict you arbitrarily and indefinitely. That's not who God is. He does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. If you look at suffering through the cross, he's got a good end in mind for you. His purposes are always only good. You may hear this today and you may say, Faith, this sounds really hard because something has happened to me that I had, no, I had nothing to do with. I'm not complacent. I don't really think I have much need for refinement. I certainly haven't been disobedient. This thing that happened to me had nothing to do with me, Faith. And I've suffered loss, and I'm mourning, and I'm grieving. So maybe it's really hard to understand this. Paul said in three, Philippians 3, verse 8, he says, look, I've, I've suffered the loss of everything in my life. I've lost everything. He says this everything. I've lost it all. This is a man who knew pain, suffering, loss, and grief. And he said, you know what? Everything I've lost, I count it as dung. That's what he said. And he said, all that matters to me is that I know Jesus, and I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. Yes, don't we all? And in the fellowship of the fellowship of his sufferings. The word there, fellowship, is koinonia. It literally means social intercourse. It's the most intimate relationship possible in the universe, the relationship between God and someone he created. And only through suffering, only through suffering, can we experience the fellowship of suffering. It's a particular closeness to God that's very precious. When we were going through that eight years, yes, it was hard. Yes, I cried a lot. Yes, I wondered when it would ever end. Yes, it looked absolutely hopeless. But I can tell you there was a sweetness and a closeness that I experienced with God Sometimes I miss it. I'm not saying I lost that, but it's so easy when we're sitting like Moab to get settled on our lees. We take our ease, and we don't have that felt need for that closeness with God. Those were precious, precious, precious times. Precious times. I would say I experienced a closeness, a closeness to God during that time that I'll never forget. It was precious. 
you do find out Jesus is enough. You find that out. In the book of Hosea, in the book of Hosea, God tells Hosea, the prophet, prophets did strange things in the Old Testament. God would have them do things in the natural, act things out as an illustration, a message to the people. God said to Hosea, I want you to go marry this lady named Gomer. She's a prostitute, and yes, I'm telling you to marry her. And she's going to run from you. She's going to keep running. She's going to be very unfaithful to you. And I want you to stick with her and never stop pursuing her. And I want you to do this to show my people the way that I love them. And he did it. He obeyed. And it says in Hosea, Chapter 2, verse 13, God says of Gomer, she decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. It says in verse 16, it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband. God never gave up on her. And this is the message to his people through this illustration. There's going to come a day that you'll call me my husband, and no longer call me my master. See, God wants intimacy with you and me, and he'll do anything to pull us back, anything he has to. He'll use anything. It says in in Hosea 2, verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Hosea, two, Hosea 6, 1 and 2 says this, and this is my closing for today. If you hear this message and you think, yeah, I've gotten far from God because of my sufferings. It's drove, driven me away from him because honestly, I'm not feeling too happy with the Lord right now for what he's allowed me to go through. Maybe you've been asking the wrong question. Maybe our prayer needs to change from God, why and how long, and please fix it and make it all go away, or fix him, fix her, fix them. Maybe our prayer needs to change to God, teach me what I cannot see. What is it you are wanting to do in me, in me? Hosea 6, 1 says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Do you know why it's specific? Do you know why there's a number of days? It's to show us that God has a timetable. You may not know it. You may think it's never going to end. God actually has his timer going. He's got a timetable, and you can trust him. You can trust him. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Come, let us return to the Lord. Would you return to the Lord with me this morning as we pray?
Father God. I repent for a very Job-like attitude that demands to know why and how long and what on earth I've done to deserve the things I go through. I repent. You are Lord and you are good and you know exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it. So today I say to you, oh God, teach me what I cannot see. Shake me from my lethargy. Wake me up in the spirit, God. Wake me up to see what you are doing in this earth and in my life and use me for what you want to do in those around me. Wake me up. And Father God, I ask you to continue the process of refining because now I understand that you sit with me in that process. You're carefully moderating, monitoring the heat and you're conforming me into the image of Jesus. And Lord, wherever I'm being disobedient, I ask you and your goodness to lead me to repentance so that the adversity I have brought on myself may be broken. Oh God, that I may know you not just in the power of your resurrection, but in the fellowship of your suffering. Help me find that fellowship. I've taken my suffering and I've made it a hell, a living hell. But God, Jesus, you would be there with me, drawing me closer into an intimacy with you that perhaps I've never tasted. I want to know that. Teach me what I cannot see, and if it's only your eyes that I've never looked into, then show me that, Jesus. Show me that. Show us that. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. You are good and you do all things well. And we thank you that after two days you will revive us and after three days you will raise us up and you are raising up your church. You're raising up your church. And we praise you and we thank you. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Feel free to sit with the refiner and <laughs> if you need to. Otherwise, you may be dismissed.